Welcome to Zephyr Podcast Sessions, where we bridge the gap between industries and discuss the secrets to rapid subscription growth. In today's podcast, our COO, Felix Danchak, interviews Julian Dickens about how telecoms and OTT businesses survive in a mature market. Hello, and welcome to the Zephyr Podcast. I'm Felix Danchak, COO of Zephyr, and this podcast delves deep into the world of everything subscriptions and publishing. Today, we'll be exploring what publishing might be able to learn from another major industry that uses subscription business models, TV, telecommunications, and the new kid on the block, streaming. We're very excited for today's guest, industry expert, some say guru, Julian Dickens, who has been advising global TV, mobile, broadband, and streaming providers for over 20 years. Julian, although well-known at organizations from the BBC to Virgin Media, rather infamously has almost no online presence, so it's a rare opportunity to pull back the veil. Julian, thanks for joining us. Hi, yeah, you're very welcome. For those who haven't come across you, could you, you know, give us a little bit about yourself and tell us about how you got to where you are today? Yeah, um, I'm an old man. Um, I was originally a film and TV lawyer and a computer lawyer. And then television and computers crashed into one another in the kind of mid to late 80s. So I started advising, at that stage as a lawyer, interactive television companies. And this is 1987, 88, pre-CD-ROM. And then rapidly recognized there was an enormous business need for people to advise all media companies about the impact of digital technology on our businesses. So I set up a consultancy to do that, which grew until about 2002 when we sold it. And then since then, I've been the custodian of a market model that projects the rollout of UK communications infrastructure connected televisions, tablets, smartphones, fixed landline, computers, et cetera, across all of the UK homes um, out for 10 years. And it's that model that I license to organizations, as you say, like Virgin Media, like BT, like Telcom, Telco side, but also new tech players like Roku and Google. Um, And then in the middle, traditional broadcasters and then the global broadcast players like Disney and Discovery and Paramount and along the way, therefore, all their new streaming businesses. Um, so it's been kind of a ride, um, but it carries on getting more and more complex and more and more interesting. Um, and so um, this is a good set of questions to be thinking about in terms of subscription and the parallels between those industries, which is why I think this was a fun thing to do. Well, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. I mean, digital publishing, I mean, publishing is one of the oldest subscription businesses out there. Um, you do your research and, you know, you look at the, the milk was delivered in subscriptions in the 1850s, uh, books in the 1830s, but newspapers really in the 1860s onwards. And those were really the only subscription business for quite some time. And they were yeah, the only ones really doing it. Um, and then, you know, the advent of digital obviously allow a lot of organizations to take advantage of this kind of business model. Classic, you know, we all think about the SaaS world, but digital publishing kind of got left behind, a bit of leapfrog by you know, telco and broadband and certainly by streaming, for, for sure, um, but is following in their footsteps. Um, I'd love to get your take on what you think are some of the similarities you've seen from TV um, and OTT and so on, and the digital news businesses you know, that, they are, that are kind of legacy in some ways, um, and, and where you see the similarities and the differences. Yeah. Um, there are... I- set of common problems that anybody inside the content-based space in particular, though it's not solely content, um, the content-based space uh, space has to face up to. One is the tension between global and local. 
technology allows global reach in a way that it never used to be the case. You could not sell the Brighton Argus newspaper. You could do it by subscription in Brighton, but you couldn't sell it in New York. So global versus local distribution attracts people into trying to work out whether they are global or local in terms of the contact they Um, And you can see players who are very clear about what that is. Um, Disney Plus is not attempting to be local. Um, Netflix is does a smidgen of local production or takes shows and tries and see if they work internationally, but it doesn't make the 30,000 hours a year of domestic content that the public service broadcasters in the UK make. Streaming makes a few hundred hours a year in the UK. So global versus local, which are you? The fact that you've got global reach doesn't mean that you've got global appeal. Second one is the tension between mediated distribution and direct distribution. The web offers direct distribution in theory. Um, It doesn't really. Um, Direct unintermediated distribution doesn't really exist because most people who are now trying to find a service online are using a search engine and a user interface which is governed and controlled by one of three companies. Um, And if you want to look at every tablet in the world and every smartphone in the world, then they are governed by Apple or Android operating systems almost totally. Every PC in the world is overwhelmingly either dominated by OS or by Microsoft. And you've now got all the same companies trying to take control of the television screen. Um, Amazon with Fire, Google with Android TV, players like Roku, big in the States, trying to take a position here. And the legacy players like Sky trying to fight back with their own interface control, which excludes all of these others. So if you're a content supplier, you've got to navigate through those interfaces. Because... Let's not, you know, don't let's not pretend for a moment that Google isn't going to take money from the highest bidder to point people your way. Amazon and Apple have content businesses. And they've got Amazon Fire and they've got they've got Amazon Video and they've got Apple Apple TV Plus. So they are not neutral providers of distribution. So mediated versus direct distribution. And if you've got direct distribution, what does that actually mean in the context of the interfaces that are emerging now, which are increasingly consolidated amount of two or three West Coast players? Third, free or pay, ad supported or subscription or pay as you go or a mixture. A mixture potentially for the same product. Netflix is a subscription business, but is rumored to be launching advertising, has been for some time. And they're clearly um, warming to the idea as, as price pressures grow. Now TV carries an ad-free version and an ad version. If you look at most of the US players, they've got a free version and an ad-supported version and an ad-free version that costs a bit more. And then a super premium version, which costs a lot more, but has no ads and more exclusive content. Everybody's experimenting with this model between free and pay and subscription. And the last one is mature markets. Nearly all the markets are talking about, and actually even streaming now, in terms of customer, total customer usage are mature. Netflix is shrinking. It's not just shrinking because we've come out of a COVID time when people locked down at home. It's mature because basically everybody who's going to pay for Netflix is probably paying for Netflix. And increasingly, as, by, as belts tighten, people are having to choose. And that leads us to the last point, which is bundling. Bundling a raft of services together, potentially services owned by different people for a single monthly bucket subscription price is an incredibly good way of building distribution and securing revenues. And if you look back, that's what pay TV always was. 
Sky and Virgin had 14 million homes in the UK that bought pay television from them at their height in about 2010. And each of them bundled all of the services and all of the channels from all of the other players in a single subscription. Well, that's not the case anymore. What we saw was that access to distribution speeds fragmentation. But fragmentation spawns cost. Fragmentation spawns the risk of churn. Fragmentation spawns high degrees of very volatile competition, which are exacerbated by the model that so many people in the streaming space adopted to grow their businesses. Oh, look, it's a monthly subscription. You can sign up whenever you want, and we won't make you sign up for 12 to 18 months. Well, now I've got used to monthly subscriptions turning around and saying, well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep you in for 12 months. It's a bit late. So those companies are now finding, I could afford Netflix at 6 99 99 But Netflix and Disney and Amazon Video and Apple TV Plus and Discovery Plus and Paramount Plus and BritBox and uh, Peacock and now TV. And suddenly I'm at 70, 80 pounds a month. And so what you're seeing now is people beginning to say, well, maybe... I should keep direct distribution, but I'm going to also need some bundling because fragmentation is something which in due course spawns bundling again because it's cost effective. So what you've now got is intense mature market competition in streaming and in telco and in pay television and in news and in traditional magazine media, print media, whatever you have, want to describe it. And that is competition both for the content and for the customers at the other end. And that's horrible because it's punishing in terms of cost. So um, movies like Sony owns a movie called Hotel Transylvania, don't franchise. Hotel Transylvania, yeah, you've probably seen a billboard for it. You probably won't have seen it, not necessarily that it's your key demographic, but Hotel Transylvania, a kid's cartoon program. The most recent Hotel Transylvania was made for, sold, rights were sold for $100 million for the streaming rights. And there are other rights involved in the package, but that's more than movie cost just for a single upfront sale, ignoring cinema, ignoring theatrical release, et cetera. So Sony knows that there's a real demand for content and that's probably going to be there for a while. Disney Plus will clearly be losing money. Netflix is still losing money effectively when you look at the way in which they amortize their debt. Netflix is going to get bought. I don't think that model will survive. Um, and one of the problems they've got is that the new business models which are emerging in and around this bundle of content completely subvert the traditional ones. Amazon Video is free if to nearly all the users because Amazon Video is free provided you take Amazon Prime retail delivery service. Amazon Prime is a vehicle which maximizes Amazon's retail return at a massively high level. I mean, they're very private with the numbers. Broad estimate is that an Amazon Prime customer in the US, this is two, three years ago, spends about $2,000 a year via Amazon. And a non-Amazon Prime customer spends about $800 to $1,000 a year. So it nearly doubles, maybe doubles the amount of money that goes to Amazon. Because once you've you've got Amazon Prime, hell, you might as well. Now, Amazon Video is free if you're Amazon Prime. So that's 100 bucks a year of free, high-value content. Some of the most expensive television ever made. The Lord of the Rings prequel coming this year, Rings of Power, is the most expensive television anybody has ever made. 
and it will be free if you've got Amazon Prime. Why does Amazon do this? Because once you're inside Amazon Prime, the rest of the service is so damn sticky that they will make money out of you for years. I'd like to um to to take this back and look at publishing. I mean, you know, the New York Times bought uh, the Atlantic uh, late last year, um, and so I think I'm sure we will see some bundling of the two properties there. Obviously, Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos, uh, um, owner of obviously uh, of Amazon. Um, do you think? But you know, you talk about this bundling of content and the, this the, these two differential models, the, the bundle model and the, and the direct model. You know, news news providers, you know, have had a battle for some time yeah. with the, the the aggregators in their space, Facebook, yeah. Google, some of the other networks, um, and you know, and have struggled to reclaim that power. Do you see the opportunity for publishers to uh, work better with them in terms of uh, doing what Sony have done? Is it a seller's market for for news, or do they need to start thinking about their own bundling? You know, like as New York New York Times is, is clearly doing, um, or are they better off, you know, completely restricting that content and forcing people down, you know, the private subscription route? Although that has, of course, has the problem that you raise, you know, arguably by an order of magnitude. You talk about there's maybe 10, 15 major streaming services, but there are yeah. how many major newspapers are there out there? I mean, I can name 30, 40 that I might want to subscribe to. Um, you know, it's, you know, or arguably it's, it's, it's even more complex, um, or at least it, it, it's a, there's another level of competition there. Where do you see, or do you see a parallel there? Do you see a lesson learned from streaming that you know, publishers can jump onto in, term, in terms of that model? I mean, in and around news, it's a particularly complex and challenged industry, in part because news is inherently not very profitable. It used to be very profitable when you had the legacy newspaper business model with lots of advertising, but all the classic advertising was stripped out because the web fundamentally does it better. So that all disappeared. All the classifieds went, cars, jobs, all the stuff that used to be in newspapers when I was a kid, none of it's there anymore. Secondly, the investment in news is expensive. Good news is easily confused in a mass market with chatter and noise. And that's cheap and, and or free. So quality news costs real money and it's hard to make money out of it. Now, you see a few examples of organizations are doing a really, really good job of that, though it's been painful and taken a very long time. New York Times is one, Guardian is another. Um, and these are businesses that are what I would call branded news outlets. And there's a phrase I'll, I, I'll need to keep going back to, that the, the, the application of the adjective branded. Branded content matters. Making content's cheapest chips. Branded content is what people wait for. It's what they sign up for. It's what they're excited to see. When you look at services like Disney+, Plus, it's got boatloads of branded content. It bought Marvel. It has farmed that universe. It bought Star Wars. It's farmed that universe. This is branded content. So branded content really matters. Branded news really matters because branded news is differentiated from other news. And I think a lot of the players in this space have to work extremely hard to define very clearly why they are valued and by whom they are valued, because that will not be the same. And this goes to global local. It goes to the segment of the audience that you can reach. It goes to the price that that segment will pay for it because of the value they put on it. And very simply, it's always broadly true. 
free stuff gets broader distribution than pay stuff. But just deciding I'm behind a paywall or I'm not, we all can see, was a pretty clumsy binary model to try to take to market and build your future on. You've got to have something along the way. And all of the newspapers, with any sense, are now messing around with subscription models at one end and loyalty schemes and be a member and come to special events. And then at the other end, it's totally free and you can watch for three, you can watch for five. And all these experiments are about trying to find out what your product is worth to whom. You talk about change. So I test and learn, super important, right? Um, you know, obviously, yeah, test and learn, absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. I mean, I, you know, the plug for Zephyr, it's obviously what we do. Um, but, you know, I was reading this morning about the Washington Post. They've uh, launched a new, what I can only describe as mortgage length subscription, frankly, longer than that. It's a 50-year subscription to the Washington Post for 50 right. bucks a year, every year until 2072. Um, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I, I don't, Sorry, inflation, inflation adjusted? Nope, nope, not inflation adjusted. It will be 50 bucks a year until 2072. It's essentially a lifetime subscription, really. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I may well not be around then, you know, um, and although I would hope to be so. Um, but, you know, the, the, no one's done this before. Would it work? I don't know. I think you're absolutely right. In 50 years, just an average inflation rate, you know, that, that 50 Even if it doesn't, though, it establishes the Washington Post as a brand that will be here in 50 years. Yeah, yeah. This is a voice of authority. And is doing crazy things. We're talking about the Washington Post. And that's a branded mechanism in its own right. It's making a statement about what the Washington Post is, which is a voice of record. Yeah, that's very bad. That's a very that's a strong point. Do you think that these the major publishers out there are not you know, there are voices of record in different industries? You know, there are niche publications yeah. that I'm, you know, that are very strong in their own spaces. Do you think there is an opportunity for them to take their brand and, as you say, fragment it into other channels? You know, they don't have to be direct. They could, you know, they become the voice of record. I guess that's why newsletters have become so powerful um, as, a, as a method for, for acquisition, certainly. Yeah, I mean, there is. But the siren voice of diversification led a whole load of people, including The Guardian, for instance, into making TV. Because they thought, well, we're a news provider, so it should be a TV news provider. And it turned out none of them were very good at it. Making a television channel, making regular news programs other than the occasional news special is not what broadly newspapers have succeeded in doing anywhere. They haven't really successfully diversified broadly, even into radio. Um, and, you know, Times every now and again tries a new, trying news channel again through the same group. But the reality is that taking the same product into a different medium under your brand, when that medium is itself extremely established with very, very, very low switching costs and screwed business models dependent on advertising is, is, is almost a zero-sum game. Can they diversify into other elements of service? Possibly. But I'm kind of cynical about it because I think we would have seen more successful diversification of big news brands than we've seen in the past. You know, I mean, I was advising newspapers on this kind of stuff literally nearly nearly 35 years ago. I can see why people call you a guru if you're doing that in the, in the 1990s. I've got this question around content there for you. Um, you know, content clearly very important. You know, it's going to drag people in or help you acquire people whether that's in streaming or whether, you know, arguably in news as well. You know, you get your, we are the, although in news media, I guess that's more complicated because, you know, breaking news is often something you can't necessarily control. Um, I would like to take 
Oh, but that does it help you with retention? You know, telco, you know, we talk about broadband provision, mobile provision. You know, that's often seen really, I mean, arguably, I mean, the UK government almost talks about broadband as a utility now. Like, you know, there should be a provision for everybody at a reasonable price. And it kind of protects them against churn. It's like, well, I've got to have my broadband. So I might as well have the broadband from here as from somewhere else. Yeah. Content driven, uh, content driven uh, acquisition and retention feels more inherently risky to me. You know, I can, I'll get my Paramount Plus. I'm sure I will watch the Halo program. I'm enough of a video gamer. Yeah. But will I then stay for the next 12 months while they make another series? No, I might well churn off and come back again. News media feels to me like it has potentially a similar problem. Yeah. Do you think there are any lessons to be learned from telco that news media could become a can present themselves not just as a brand but as a utility? Okay, there are it, that gives rise to three or four different issues. The first one is the nature of the subscription relationship is relevant both for acquisition and for retention. The second is in a mature market, the balance between the two is different from in a growing market. In a growing market, it's about subscriber acquisition. In a mature market, it's much more about subscriber retention because you can only acquire customers off other people. Therefore, by definition, anything I do to acquire customers is going to drive somebody else's churn up. So everybody concentrates on churn. And when you then look at what works and what doesn't work, you then have to start looking at how can the customer's mind at any given moment be changed? Because there are always two things which drive customer response, which drive human response, which are greed and fear. Now, fear is what happens with broadband. I should change my broadband, but everybody tells me that changing broadband's a nightmare and my broadband might be out for days and, and I don't know that I want to do this. So broadly, it's about fear, all other things being equal. If you look at the media players, the streaming players, the TV platforms, then it's not about, it's also, it's not so much about fear, it's about greed, greed for content, for stuff I want to see, for things that will excite and thrill me. And at this point, I, I use an analogy of people standing at the bus stop in the room. Um, I need to get home. And I've gone to stand at the bus stop and it started to run. And I look up, and the analogy here is between Disney Plus and Netflix and Amazon. I can't afford six services. I can afford maybe two. And I tuned in to get Disney Plus because I wanted to watch the new Ms. Marvel series. And that's done now. I've watched it all. Now, if I'm thinking of leaving Disney Plus, Disney's job is to stop me leaving by promising me something else in a short enough period of time to keep me interested. And it's like those little red lights in the bus stop which say, you've just missed the number 73 bus, but another one will be along in the next three minutes. It's not worth walking to the tube station. And the harder it rains, the longer that two or three minutes can be before I'll leave and go somewhere else. But if it's a sunny day and there's lots of content coming in from other people, and one of the things Netflix is suffering is Netflix, in my view, does not have enough big branded series to keep people there for as long as it used to be able to. There are lots more buses coming, and they're coming with much shinier things on them. And at the same time, of course, that Disney Plus is rolling out and Paramount Plus is rolling out, then they are taking their content off Netflix. These used to be on Netflix, and not anymore. So Netflix is just doing its own shows. 
Ironically, it becomes, despite the amount of money being spent on content, it is almost a zero-sum game. You know, as you take it, take Friends goes off Netflix, goes on to, I think, Paramount Plus, I, I believe. Um, and that's probably going to be one of the big drivers of them. And, and making branded content, and I think branded news is part of this, is, has always been a uniquely self-perpetuating business model. Disney, Paramount, Sony Columbia, Warner Brothers, Fox, are all 100-year-old businesses. Why? Because they make branded content in a way that nobody else can afford. How do they do it? Traditionally, theatrical. They make a movie, and then they pump advertising into it, and they show it in a million cinemas, and everybody goes, that was amazing. And then they've got a brand, and they will milk that brand. You can do it from television. Paramount did it with Star Trek. But over the years, you build branded content and you learn how to make that compelling for generation after generation after generation. Star Wars, I saw the day I left law school. But it's now a global brand and will carry on being so. Does Netflix have global brands like that? A few. Squid Game, possibly. Stranger Things, possibly. But it's very, very, very expensive. And very risky. And you de-risk your content business by having access to a legacy pile of branded content. And that's why Fox went for so much money. It's why Comcast bought NBC Universal. Comcast bought it because Comcast, a comms company, a cable company, a broadband company, with no content. BT has BT Sport, which has cost it a fortune. Virgin Media doesn't own content of its own. This feels like a very strong proposition for the, um, either B2B publishers or kind of uh, niche interest publications, you know, like that have um, where their legacy content, you know, their archive can be valuable in the future. You know, I, I make this one up, but, you know, a company based around, I don't know, knitting, you know, their, the patterns they were putting in their magazine 10 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago are still perfectly viable patterns. Today, there is definitely, I, I can see the, the, the analogy here very strongly. Where do you think it sits with, the, the, I feel, I guess the, the where it falls down for me is news, breaking news. You know, the Ukraine crisis happens, it started happening, well, I mean, it's been boiling for a very long time, obviously, but unfortunately, you know, the war broke out earlier this year. It didn't happen before then. And in 20 years, will people be wanting that news? So how would, say, I mean, The Guardian or The Times or The Telegraph or the New York, New York, the New York Times be able to leverage that level of legacy? One of the questions you therefore have to answer is with whom? And there's a big generational issue. Everybody, you know, everybody knows that there's a massively generational issue around newspapers, whatever format they are delivered in. What is also evident is that as you go down the younger generations, their willingness to take their news from unverified services or unverified sources. I mean, Upday is the third largest online news provider in the UK. It's the news aggregator site by Samsung. That's horrifying because it's not branded news. It's just cheap news headlines thrown together as saying this is what's going on in the world today. It's almost now, it's explicitly debranded, really. Yeah, it's debranded news. Now, what I think is what I expect to see is that in the realm of consumer news, there will be a growing gulf between the companies that can afford to invest heavily and for a long period of time in quality news generation. High brand journalists who themselves are now brands in a way that journalists 
weren't 150 years ago. We've had hybrid yards quite a long time now. But you know, Marina Hyde and the Guardian is a reader to read the Guardian, I think, as far as one 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 can see. Um, and I think there will be a bigger gap, like there's an ever bigger gap between the services that can make 150, 200 million dollar movies and TV shows and services that can't and news organizations that can continually break news with high quality comment and proper research. And The Guardian has become a campaigning newspaper and it set its stall out and it's investing heavily in collaborative news investigation into corruption and will carry on doing that. And that's its route to traction. And I think we are going to pure news headlines, what happened today, it's not what news organizations can grow to scale on. Because the scale of war broke out in the Ukraine, not many dead or lots dead, is not something that you have a monopoly over. What you have to do is build a monopoly over the way you approach it, the reputation you have for it. That's why I find the Washington Post thing so immune, so, so interesting, so intriguing, it's very clever. Um, and I also think that you're going to see more and more marginal news organizations go to the war. Unless they can rip all their costs, the model we know, they rip all their costs out and make them very small and very bespoke and very local. Local is, you, you say B2B, I say local is another one. Just localised in a vertical versus localised in a geography, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I've, got, um, I've got a nasty question for you, which people, we always ask, it, one always asks at the end of podcasts, um, but it'll put, to put your um, uh, title as a guru in, into, into question. Um, over the next five years, can you give me one or give us one prediction that you you foresee in the in subscription businesses, whether that's streaming or in uh, or in publishing, in publishing? One thing that won. Yeah. Okay. Um, we'll go back to bundling. Now, what you bundle with then becomes critical, and who does the bundling is critical. And I think that's a really really key pair of questions. Buying endless individual subscriptions, thousands, hundreds of them, thousands of them, is not going to happen. So I'm in a situation where either I am going to take a subscription, in which case it's going to be £6.99, £7.99, £10 a month, or I'm not. And the step between zero and ten, zero and seven, is big. There will be a marketplace out there for buying five subscriptions for £20 rather than two subscriptions for £10 each. That's what the bundling model for content did. And this is true for news and it is true for content of entertainment value. It's true for sports and whatever. Now, those bundles used to be easy because if you go back to 2010, there was only Sky and Virgin Media who could do it for television content. Okay. Well, they can't anymore. They're losing control of all of that content. So their goal now is to be the best value bundle. Because wholly unbundled is cost inefficient for too many people. So the struggle is going to be, what are the best value bundles of what nature for how big an audience? Sky, with Sky Glass, is openly now preparing to bundle music services and fitness services as well as movie services and sports services and basic television content. And they, they may start monitoring all sorts of different things along the way. But they're also bundling broadband 
and they're bundling mobile because you can buy Sky Broadband and Sky Mobile. And they, they're putting together packages of things around a broadband service with some core content. You won't be able to get Sky Originals anywhere else. You won't be able to get NBC Universal content anywhere else. You will be able to get Disney in other places because Disney's only selling itself directly over all the platforms. But Disney's a huge name on the block. Paramount is only bundled with Sky Movies. It's not bundled with anybody else at the moment. What do those packages look like? And we did some of the modeling for the Paramount Plus distribution strategy. And I can't go into the details on that, but very clearly they are in a decision of maximizing their distribution for as much money as they can get, because there's not much point having a Paramount Plus that costs £100 a month and only three people take it. The other extreme, there's not much point in having a free Paramount Plus because the advertising revenue will never pay for it. So somewhere along the line, you've got to find a solution. Um, the first solution is a standalone sale at different prices. The next thing is different kinds of bundles. And testing, and, testing them out. Testing and seeing what works. I, 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 completely. And what people will buy together. You've got to bring them and you've got Give to Give them options. What will they buy together? What will they not? How much will they pay for it? How does it affect churn? Because there's no point doing it. And one of the things that the telcos got wrong is that they have just gone and bundled fixed line and mobile, both of which are utilities, which have no natural conjunction with one another. Everyone pretends they do because we talk into telephones, but the reality is nobody talks into landline phones now anyway. I bet people barely talk into mobile phones. So the reality is these are both utilities. They're absolutely identical, whoever you buy them from. And what was the bundling strategy? What does it lead to? What it's led to is a price collapse. Yeah. Now, that's not successful. You have to find value bundling. And that's, if it, you know, I, I know, I know literally what, what Zephyr does. There is, a, there is a, a pot of gold out there for the companies and the services that best learn how to show people to maximize value bundling. It's all about value. It's not just about the price. Price is just a function. And value, critically, is a self-perception. Value varies from person to person. Cost doesn't. Value does. So how much A values a mix of X, Y, and Z will be different from the value that B puts on a mix of X, Y, and Z. And if you can unravel that with mass customization of subscription offers, mass flexing of subscriptions for retention, a very simple model, which I have talked to my telco clients about for ages, and they struggle to do, they say, okay, well, you're the platform, you've got X customers, why do you not offer those customers a mechanism where they can buy Paramount Plus? For $5.99, Paramount sets the price, and Disney Plus for $6.99 or $7.99, Disney sets the price, but they buy all three for £15. And they struggle to do that, in part because their distribution heft isn't necessarily big enough to enable them to force people to agree to concessionary pricing. Disney doesn't want to play the bundling game, very clearly. Disney well, they are the bundling. global brand, which is their branded content. Why would they allow it? Like, that is the value that they offer. That is the value that they, they bring in. They don't need to. But there's a lot of, exactly, a lot of people are not Disney. Yeah, and it's the one, it's the thing that sets them apart. It keeps them separate. I mean, like, we're running out of time. Um, 
this has been absolutely fascinating. So we're here, we're talking about, the it's about bundling, but it comes with risks. We've got to be successful. We've got to be thoughtful about the value bundle, not just the price bundle. We've got to think about how we personalize right. those bundles. And we've got to think about branded news content. That's one of the big takeaways for me from, from this chat, um, that actually the value of news is not just in the, the content itself, but in the brand that's providing it over that long time. And maybe we could come back in 50 years and see whether the Washington Post's uh, offer is a successful one. Um, yeah, by which time I'll only be 114. Well, it seems very reasonable then, doesn't it? Right. Um, um, we'll see you then. We'll have you back. Um, thank you very, very much for your time, Julian. I really, really appreciate it. This has been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, thank you anyway.